Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th of February, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, White Robinson. And people will have no idea how close that was. To Very you. close indeed. <laughs> Myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined uh, by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and our very own Katie Joe. Okay, look, we're going to get straight on uh, with Ukraine. And uh, well, here's Boris, uh, because he held a meeting with the leaders of uh, US, Canada, uh, Italy, Poland, Romania, France, Germany, the European Council and the European Commission and NATO to discuss uh, the situation in Ukraine on Friday evening, is what he says. Uh, he told them all that he feared for the security of Europe uh, in our recent circumstances. Uh, he impressed the need uh, for NATO allies to uh, make it absolutely clear that there will be a heavy package of economic sanctions ready to go should Russia make the devastating and destructive decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, and he said that uh, Putin had to understand that there would be severe penalties uh, that would be extremely damaging to Russia's economy and that allies needed to continue with efforts to reinforce the support and support the eastern frontiers of NATO because NATO, as we now know, has borders. Um, so, uh, well, what else was going on over the last couple of days? Uh, we had Blinken and so on in uh, Australia. Uh, and uh, what he was while he was there, he said, uh, as I've said before, we're in a window where invasion could begin at any time. And to be clear, that includes during the Olympics. Uh, and he said that uh, a full scale invasion it, militarily, it can start within days. And, and they're basically saying it's likely to start. Uh, on Wednesday. I'm not really sure how they know that. Could it be because, of course, Britain and the United States have been in there training uh, the Banderites in, in, uh, uh, in Ukraine and uh, maybe these people are about to take sure. some action which might require or, or encourage a, a Russian response. And then, of course, the claims would be Russian invasion. Um, so let's have a look at uh, Jake Sullivan then, the US uh, National Security Advisor. Uh, and Western and US officials, he said, tell me that in recent days, the US saw uh, Russian forces increase their readiness for a possible invasion, uh, and US officials became convinced that the timeline is being accelerated into next week. Uh, and so those facts combined led US and military officials to brief their NATO allies, and three Western and US officials tell me that Vladimir Putin had made, made the decision to invade. But this was all very confusing, uh, because uh, President Zelensky, uh, well, he basically had this to say, there's too much information out there today. Uh, he was very confused about the whole situation. Uh, he said uh, about a deep full-scale war on Russia's part, there's even talk of appropriate dates, that being Wednesday this week. Uh, we understand all the risks. Uh, and then he said, well, really, the United States, if they're claiming that there's going to be an invasion, need to give them uh, the information, because as far as he's concerned, Ukraine hasn't been given any information about 100% chance of invasion. So he said, if anyone has any additional information about a 100% chance of invasion, they should give it to us. Um, so David, maybe I could invite you in at this point and just say, uh, just ask, I mean, this rhetoric that's being ramped up in the West, clearly the Ukrainians haven't been told what the evidence is. Weak as uh, individuals haven't been told, of course, what the evidence is for, uh, for actual invasion. But it seems the Ukrainians haven't either. No, and that's, that's critical. I mean, it's one thing for the, uh, the American spokesman to stand up in front of their own press and say, I'm telling you that's all the evidence you need. I take my word for it, which is essentially what they're doing. It's quite another thing as to say to a foreign government, you are about to be invaded. Um, 
I have no evidence for this. Uh, I'm sure the Ukrainians, if they had any solid evidence, would be shouting it from the hilltops, the rooftops, uh, to alert the international community to the danger they're in. They clearly don't have anything that, that satisfies uh, that, that, that um, requirement. So uh, this is, again, um, beating the war drums, raising tension, all coming from the West, and the real substance to it is, at the very best, hidden. Um, so uh, if we uh, put uh, this next one up on screen, of course, the other thing that was going on over the weekend was that before you knew it, all kinds of people were being evacuated from Ukraine. The British were evacuating people. The Americans were evacuating people. The Israelis were evacuating people from Ukraine. So clearly they're expecting something to happen. Uh, and then uh, there was a press release from uh, uh, Blinken again, who's, of course, Secretary of State. Uh, this was he was in Korea or he was speaking to the Korean uh, foreign minister. Um, and the Japanese foreign minister. Uh, and the, he said, uh, in the meeting the three of us had, we discussed the threat that Russia may uh, pose, not only to Ukraine, but to the entire international rules-based order, um, which has uh, provided a foundation for decades of shared security um, and, of course, peaceful peace for our, all our people in the region and again around the globe. Uh, when one country seeks to flout the sovereignty and territorial integrity, uh, when it seeks to change the borders of another by force and so on. And, and again, he's just, David, pushing this notion of, of rules, the rules-based uh, order. And this, of course, um, the threat, of course, is not to you or I as individuals. It is a threat to uh, Blinken and uh, his cabal that are sort of running the Anglo-American uh, governments at the moment. Well, the rules-based order is, again, who, who writes the rules? Um, take Crimea, for an example, right? Now, in other circumstances, if that had been um, an area seceding from, uh, from Russia, uh, the, uh, the narrative would be all about the established rules-based order that people have the right to choose their own government and nations and peoples have the right of self-determination. That's the line that would, that, that would be pushed. Uh, but because it's the other way around, then uh, different rules are selected from the uh, array of rules available. And now it's uh, nations must have absolute uh, control and, and security of the borders, and these borders must never change. Um, so the, the, it's, it's who writes the rules or who selects the rules, because there's plenty of rules out there. And uh, we'll, we'll pick ones that, that suit us, say, the um, rules in Western parliaments and uh, in the White House. Indeed. Um, so then we move on to Russia today here. And uh, the U.S. nuclear submarine violates Russian waters, said the Russian Defense Ministry. Uh, the Russian Navy has detected a U.S. nuclear submarine in the country's territorial waters, chasing the vessel away. Uh, the country's military said. Now, is that we we discussed this before the program, Brian? Was, is it normal that that uh, a U.S. marine would go into Russian territorial waters? Not to go into the territorial waters, but certainly to be monitoring a fleet exercise. That would be quite normal. And yes, both sides do this, and both sides would 
be prepared in certain circumstances to put assets close to territorial waters. I think it's unlikely that it deliberately went inside, but it's possible if they were playing things to the edge. Of course, as the you Russians say that... would want to make something of this in the present climate, I think. But is this normal? Do the Americans do this? Do the British do this? Yes. Do the Russians do it? Yeah, Chinese do it? Yes. yes. So the, the business of a submarine monitoring a uh, an exercise is completely normal. So in this case, the exercise was an anti-submarine exercise by coincidence. Uh, and uh, uh, so the Russians uh, apparently used a destroyer to uh, persuade that away. submarine to, to disappear. Um, and then uh, what do we have here? We've got the Washington Post. Uh, the West prepares to shorp, sharpen Eastern defenses if Russia invades Ukraine. So there we have all the massed marvels uh, heading off to C-31s, and uh, I think a number of them have now landed, or sorry, C-17s, I do apologize, uh, and uh, have landed in, in Poland, uh, bringing more uh, troops there. But it gets even better uh, because here is the Romanian ambassador to the United States who is saying, we, what we need is a permanent presence of United States soldiers. This is what we need, a permanent presence, because we've seen in the last seven years, Russia is not a friend. So uh, we now are at a stage, David and Brian, where we're uh, we've got uh, representatives of governments demanding foreign occupation. Well, they, they think that the the um, benefit of this is that if they got Russia, uh, if they got American soldiers on their soil, uh, and any one of those soldiers is injured or killed as a result of some form of military action, they're all they're immediately going to get the protection of NATO. But of course, this is completely false logic because the American forces on their soil is going to escalate the situation in the first place. The other bit I'm going to say, and it's, it's a pretty tough thing to talk about, but the Americans are very big on their power. But when it comes down to the body count, they're not so good. And it's only the Russians and the Germans that have got experience of war in, in, uh, on the Eastern Front. And the scale of it is unimaginable to most people in the West. Certainly most Americans, they have no idea of the scale and bloodshed of, of, the, of the Eastern Front. So I think this is just rhetoric. These small troop, troop movements are provocative, but they don't actually provide any military stability. No, indeed. And uh, well, in order to try to make up for Liz Truss's uh, efforts in Moscow last week, uh, at the end of last week, uh, the British government sent Ben Wallace and Tony Radican. So Ben Wallace, of course, the, the Secretary of State for Defence, and Tony Radican, the uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, over to Moscow where they met uh, uh, Sergei Shoigu and uh, and a number of others. Uh, uh, so how well did it go? Well, the Russians said, well, it went a lot better than Liz Truss's uh, uh, trip. But nonetheless, what did we have from Ben Wallace? David, there's a whip, whiff of Munich in the air. And, and this is what he came back with. Uh, that's quite a staggering statement. And, and, and it's, it's beyond belief that he should, he should say this. Right? Can we have some analysis, please? Right? It's a word, Munich. Right? It's appeasement. So that paints Putin as Hitler, something that the Russians will probably find personally offensive, I would, get, I would guess. And, um, and it, it, it suggests that this is the last chance to prevent world war. Right, because that was the whole the, the narrative about Munich is if we'd stood up at Munich, we might have we might have averted the Second World War and all of the bloodshed that went with it. So uh, it was weakness at Munich. Uh, there's more to the Munich narrative than that, of course. 
But the 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 uh, for public consumption narrative is weakness at Munich caused the Second World War. If only we'd been stronger, we could have averted it. We could have we could have uh, faced Hitler down in in 1938 and uh, 39. And um, the, the, he's trying to paint the Ukrainian situation as the last chance for peace in the way that Munich is generally understood to be the last chance for peace. This is uh, an escalation of speech beyond all realms of, of reason. Yes, uh, it's, I think we need uh, new people uh, in charge. Uh, what, well, I, I think as far as, as far as the global elites, the power base, We've got the right people in charge because we've got puppets. We've got complete idiots that can't even remember their script, mistrust. Yeah. And uh, these are exactly the people that the, the new world order wants in order to get its global policies in position. So it depends how you look at these people. They're, they're silly. They're idiots. They're, they don't know what they're talking about. But actually, they're doing the job that the masters want. Um, so uh, forces uh, net here reporting that UK troops uh, who are training forces in Ukraine are leaving this weekend. That was last week. That was yesterday and the day before. So this this is a, a, a pretty interesting situation, isn't it? Because we put the forces in there to show resolve against what the nasty Russians were going to do. And now it's hotting up. We're going to pull those troops out. Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't want British deaths. We want uh, Ukrainian deaths. We want Ukrainian deaths. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, Ben Wallace, uh, well, you'll be glad to know he has cancelled his, his holiday. He was heading off to a foreign holiday, holiday with his family and he had to come back. Uh, yes. But he, he said he'll be returning. So I think he's going back to Ukraine. We're pulling the troops out, but we're sending Ben Wallace back. Right? Well, I think this is misread a, that tweet. This is a very good idea. This should be the first thing that happens. We should send Boris, Ben Wallace and Liz Truss right into Ukraine. To right, face the Russians. Yes. Yes. yes they should be leading uh, by example. And... Uh, well, the Ministry of Defence uh, has decided that we should uh, know all about the fact that uh, NATO has been there for 70 years uh, and uh, we've got lots of faces of NATO, as you just saw on screen there. David, what were your thoughts? Well, I'm just pointing out that uh, The Guardian was saying that the uh, UK Defence Secretary heads to Moscow on ratings high. Ben Wallace to meet the Russian counterpart for talks as Conservative members vote him best in Cabinet. There we go. So he's best in show. You'll get a little rosette. Uh, that's as good as it gets. Yes, I think it is. Uh, okay, let's uh, head over to the French media then and Marianne. Uh, and uh, let's just do a quick translation of this. Faced with the Ukrainian crisis, France's autumn exit, that's uh, exit from NATO, is an absolute emergency. Now, who's, uh, who's writing this? Um, well, it's two former... Uh, heads of the uh, Bank for International Settlements. So it's quite an interesting uh, little uh, article. So I just wanted to run through it. Um, breaking with the policy of non-alignment, followed by De Gaulle, Giscard, and uh, Mitterrand for twenty, for, sorry, for forty-three years, France once again became a member of the Integrated Military Command of NATO in two thousand and nine, without the French people having been consulted by referendum. The current Ukrainian crisis reveals the serious perils to which France is exposed by being attached to a defensive collective security organization under the command of the United States that has become expansionist. Uh, since November 2021, the French, like other peoples of the West, have been subjected to an unprecedented mental conditioning conducted by the United States and NATO 
on the theme of the imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine, which may go down in history as an episode of disinformation along the lines of the fabricated intelligence on Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction in 2003. Uh, what is the reality? Millions of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the two self-proclaimed Donbass People's Republics live under sporadic firing and shelling by Ukrainian army against separatist forces. The concentration of Russian troops on Ukraine's borders is obviously aimed, they said, at, at dissuading Kiev from attempting to regain direct control of the enclaves of Donetsk and uh, Luhansk by force. Uh, and then they go on to say on January 7, 2022, in a joint press conference with President Macron in Paris, the president of the European Com uh, Commission allowed herself a federalist statement that exceeded her prerogatives. Uh, and that was that we agree that we need a real defense union. Uh, in the presence of President Macron, she spoke of adding a defense union to the economic and monetary union in the future without taking into account the fact that this statement is contrary to the French constitution, which is based on national independence, national sovereignty and national defense. And well, I have to say that these two gents are uh, perhaps a little deluded if they don't recognize that France gave that up the day they joined the European Union in the first place. But anyway, that is, uh, is a statement about the French constitution, which is correct nonetheless. Uh, France's exit from NATO, they said, uh, which will mark the end of the alignment of France's foreign security policy with the United States, will have an immense impact on the world. That's if they do it, of course. Uh, it would signal Europe's independence from American exceptionalism, the renewal of multilateralism, the emergence of a multipolar world, and the rapid demise of the obsolete NATO framework. Uh, France then does rediscover its universal vocation, contributing to the global balance for peace, and playing, thanks to its rediscovered impartiality, a role of synthesis within the P5, uh, the concert of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, that's the United States, the United Kingdom, China, Russia, and France, a P5 whose composition must be maintained and whose role as a regulator uh, of world peace uh, must be enhanced. So, David, that is uh, coming from two former heads of the Bank for International Settlements, and I just thought that was an interesting opinion piece, and I strongly recommend people read the rest of it. It certainly is, and it, it, it's showing that at least some people are thinking, well, there could be another way. Uh, we remember Trump described NATO as obsolete, I thought a perfectly chosen word, um, and it's certainly been morphed into something that it was never advertised as, uh, just the way that the uh, European Union um, was never advertised to the British people as being uh, a political union, and it morphed into that. Uh, how long before countries will start to say, well, actually, we are being carried along to something that we never signed up for? Um, time will tell. Uh, I suspect that the, um, the, the security or the solidity of NATO is more, um, is more apparent than real. I don't think it would take much for it to come apart. Uh, indeed, but the, the, the one thing that did amuse me slightly was their suggestion that uh, uh, the European Defence Union is uh, von der Leyen's baby. Of course, she has taken over carrying that baby, but it's not her baby. It began uh, many, many years ago. In fact, it could be argued it began uh, in 1947 in, in the British government, but certainly in more recent years, in 1998, when Chirac and Blair set up the San Malo uh, Declaration and, uh, and effectively created the, the uh, Common Security and Defence Policy. So, so it is slightly uh, ironic that it, that it was the French, uh, along with the British, that have been key drivers of this policy for 40 years. 
Um, yeah, yes, and the the great unknown in all of this is the position of Germany, and uh, they are the economic powerhouse of Europe. Uh, they have the interior lines, they have the, the central part of the European subcontinent, and um, they are at the moment trying to uh, sit very carefully on the fence and not antagonise the Russians and have in many ways, a sensible policy with respect to Russia and Ukraine. Um, until they change, or are forced to change, uh, the European Un Union will forever be a, a, a minor player in the world of defence, because it's basically the French and, uh, and a, few, a few ancillaries. Uh, if Germany changes, the European Union changes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'll just add to that that, of course, in the segment we've we've mentioned the manipulation of people's minds. So, so we've got this huge focus on Ukraine. Very interesting that it's come up just at the time when Western governments are facing unprecedented challenge of matters to do with COVID and the vaccine policy. So, is there some means of getting public attention off what's happening at home and focus onto the nasty Russians? Well, we can expect the BBC to be. Uh, uh, manipulating people's minds. I couldn't resist this uh, image from the BBC. So here we are, people with plywood Kalashnikovs. I hope that's not Russian plywood, of course. And the headline is Ukrainian tensions, US defends evacuating embassy as Zelensky urges calm. Now, the key point I want to uh, get to in the BBC report is uh, where the information is coming from. So there's been many diagrams of the nasty red forces in the uh, red dots shown in maps like this. And if we look closely to screen, we can see that this has come from Russian consulting and also using Maxar uh, satellite imagery uh, when we get the detail on vehicles parked on the ground, all those tents that yes. you mentioned the other day, Mike. So what is the actual quality of this information? Well, obviously, the satellites images have taken pictures of something. But until you've got a proper military analyst saying exactly what is in the picture, what is on the ground, what is the significance, you're really making a stab in the dark. Because if this is a routine vehicle park, that is all it is. And I just want to draw people's attention to who the BBC goes to, because we can bring in this gentleman, Konrad Muzika, who is Polish, and he's one of the key um, analysts that the uh, BBC is uh, using to report on these Russian troop movements. So um, he's Polish. Um, he's got a background um, with a UK university, so he holds an MA in Russian studies. Um, uh, from the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College in London. So he's trained in the West. He's in Poland. Is this man impartial? And of course, we have no idea where he stands as he builds the information that the BBC uh, then goes on to print. And the other part of this is I just want to remind people that back in September 2014, UK Column News was talking about matters to do with Ukraine. And we'd actually picked up on this tweet, which I retweeted. Um, it had come from the Russian embassy in UAE. We'll bring it up on screen. And here were the Russians saying NATO's latest evidence of Russian armor invading Ukraine has been leaked. Seems to be the most convincing ever. 
And uh, if we look closely, what we see is a parody, of course, on the poor quality reporting by the BBC. We've got little plastic vehicles. Let's bring those up so people can see them. And here, it, here are the Russians clearly mocking uh, what the Western media is, is ranging against them. Well, we did a bit of analysis at the time, so we added some detail as to what the vehicles were. We've got an SZU-23 anti-aircraft vehicle here. We've got a soft-skin vehicle known as a lorry. Uh, so we really tried to take this apart because, of course, the Russians had got to the point where they didn't know how to deal with what was thrown against them aside from mock it, and I think that's quite right. But at the same time in the West, the Met Police uh, put out a warning that anybody viewing or downloading or distributing this sort of information uh, could be breaking the law, but they then stood back from it. So at the moment in the West, can we trust uh, media? Can we trust the BBC in particular with regard to reporting on Ukraine? I think the answer has got to be no, we can't. Okay, so what's the economic effect then of all this uh, on our daily lives? Because this is uh, what's affecting people most. Uh, and here's the Wall Street Journal from a day or two ago, why Russian invasion peril is driving all oil prices near $100. Uh, and of course, what's the impact of that oil and gas prices linked in many ways? Uh, here's, uh, this is money. Uh, here's an energy price shock for householders as gas costs soar, tariffs branded green are going up even faster, says this is money. But okay, uh, the point is oil and gas prices going through the roof. Um, and that means, David, that uh, according to uh, the uh, government, the North Sea gas is crucial for our energy security, uh, as if we didn't know that already. But the problem is, David, that North Sea gas is Scottish. It is the Scottish North Sea, isn't it, these days? Uh, and therefore, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing two things, high prices for oil and gas and uh, the fact that the North Sea is notionally Scottish. And that's resulting in some Tory voices coming out uh, and saying we really need to restart the fracking uh, initiative because, of course, that uh, means natural gas is available to England as well. So here's Talk Radio, Richard Tice's programme on Talk Radio. Uh, and Richard Tice really uh, tearing strips off Susan in Exeter for suggesting that, uh, uh, that fracking had caused earthquakes in the UK, which of course it did, and it caused physical damage to people's homes in Blackpool, for example. Uh, but he said, well, no, actually, uh, you know, a, 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 a two- It was very demeaning to, yes, to, yes. to that lady. Yes, but he's saying, you know, seismic uh, rating of two would, would uh, be equivalent to a, a lorry driving past your, your window sort of thing. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we're starting to see pressure to restart the fracking industry, David. And if we do see the fracking industry restarted uh, in England, at least, that's got to be down to uh, the Scottish National Party, because, of course, Scotland's future is based entirely on uh, North Sea gas revenues and, uh, and tax revenues and so on. So clearly, Scotland is claiming that all for itself. Well, you would think in a rational world that would be the case, but we don't have a rational world. We have Nicola Sturgeon. And uh, she's, of course, uh, in completely owned by the COP26 ideas. She's a wholly owned subsidiary uh, of uh, the IPCC and Greta Thunberg, uh, and indeed the Scottish Green Party, which is more or less the same thing. Uh, so she is trying to close down the Scottish oil industry, doing so quite successfully. Uh, she's refusing permission to drill. She's refusing permission to explore. Uh, she's... Um, 
adamantly against the concept that Scotland will have any sort of hydrocarbon-based industry whatsoever. Now, I know what you think. That's entirely insane because that's the basis on which an economic case for independence could, could be based, and she's entirely destroying her own policy. Yes, Mike, that's true, and that's because uh, she is not up to the job. Uh, indeed. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column's doing and would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And if you like uh, uh, our material, also do share it on the various platforms as you see them. Excellent. I'd just like to remind people to go and have a look at the MHRA board meetings. I'm sorry, I haven't updated the view figures. So the 1,474 is from 1st of February 2022. But what uh, UK Column is stating is that if people go and watch the actual MHRA board meetings, they can see and hear the MHRA board meetings effectively sidestepping the whole issue of vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, you can hear their words, you can see how they do it, and there is no better evidence for the fact that this uh, organisation has still not carried out its duty of care, the due diligence into the completion of a, of a uh, risk assessment on the vaccine adverse reactions. So if you go and have a look and uh, your view is clocked up, of course, the MHRA board members themselves know they're being watched. And uh, I'd also like to say to people, we're well aware that uh, Dr. Reiner Formick is carrying on his good work. Alex Thompson and myself participated on Saturday evening where uh, evidence was going into the grand jury. I believe that they're doing some really excellent work. Uh, there were some very good presentations, particularly by the ladies who came forward to give evidence, in particular when they were talking about the way that law was being manipulated by the UN and the World Health Organization to enable it to uh, control domestic laws within countries, particularly, of course, in relation to health matters and the so-called COVID-19 pandemic. So some really good work uh, going on by Rainer Formick and his team. Um, OK, David, let's move over to Canada then. And uh, the question is, where's Trudeau? Where's Trudeau now? Trudeau famously went into hiding. Uh, when the truckers turned up in town, he left and uh, this declared himself too frightened to come out in, uh, in his capital city. Uh, this is a wonderful cartoon by uh, Bob Moran. Um, there's many, it's, it's one of those cartoons that, that uh, the more you watch, the more you look at it, the more you see. I particularly love the little fat lad wearing a mask and an I love farmer jumper. Um, but if we zoom in, uh, on, down in one corner, we've got the vaccination centre and a queue of people uh, lining up there and then people collapsing having been vaccinated and being carried out to the emergency uh, paramedic and in the corner there you can see there's Trudeau in blackface uh, hiding in the corner so um, that was that was extremely entertaining and uh, it quite shocked some of our American cousins who aren't used to cartoons quite as hard hitting as as that um, now um, on the subject of Trudeau continuing on this um, Trudeau said, quote, um, I can understand the frustrations with mandates, uh, but mandates are the best way to avoid further restrictions. We, we've reported on this wonderful uh, speech already. Um, 
And uh, Neil Ferguson's calculator, an excellent uh, Twitter account covering all things COVID, um, he commented that uh, this is an example of war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Right? Black being white. So Trudeau is asking people to uh, sign away their freedom in order to avoid signing away their freedom. Uh, this is the level of limitation and stupidity and inability to communicate any sort of coherent idea that's currently coming out of major leaders in the Western world these days. Um, we've got a clip here from um, American uh, left-wing uh, talk show host and comedian Bill Maher, um, who comments on this, uh, the, the nature of Trudeau's pronouncements. He started to read what he, he said, this is a couple of weeks ago, he was, or maybe this is September, but he was talking about people who are not vaccinated. He said, they don't believe in science. They're often misogynistic, often racist. No, they're Ooh, not. That was not that, smart of him at all. Right. He said, but they take up space. Mm. And wow. with that, we have to make a choice in terms of a leader as a country. Do we tolerate these people? It's like, tolerate these? Now you do that's, sound like no, Hitler. That's, mm -hmm. that, that was... uh, and recently he talked about them holding, holding unacceptable views. Wow. This, I'm yeah. surprised to hear that Trudeau said those things. So when you have uh, left-wing commentators like Bill Maher actually coming out and saying, this, this is extreme uh, totalitarian statism. This is, this is reminiscent of Hitler. And if we're looking for people reminiscent of Hitler, we should be looking at Trudeau. We shouldn't be looking at Putin. Because, um, you know, he's talking about, do we tolerate these people? These are his own people. These are his own voters. These are, are the Canadians uh, that he is meant to serve. And uh, he's, he's, he's suggesting that maybe we shouldn't tolerate their existence or views uh, or freedom. Okay, so keep going. That takes us on to uh, Daniel Bulford. Now, um, in the original cartoon uh, from Bob Moran, there was a mountie and his horse was defecating on the uh, Canadian flag. And indeed, some of the mounties, particularly in senior positions, have been doing exactly that. Not all, however. Some of them have been entirely the reverse. Some of the mounties have been excellent. This is one example. First short clip here just to introduce you to who this man is. Daniel Bulford, um, a corporal in... Um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, um, he introduces himself and explains what his job used to be. Similar to Dr. Panessi losing her job over a violation of what she held to be her ethics, I'm about to lose mine and my primary responsibility for the last eight years was supporting protection of our Prime Minister. <laughs> the irony is not lost on me and probably not lost on him either. Uh, now, Mr. Bilford goes on to uh, explain the reasoning uh, that got him to a point where he could not cooperate any longer with the, with the orders and instructions he was being given. He went through in some detail uh, explaining how unconstitutional the entire COVID narrative uh, and the laws brought in um, to coerce the Canadian population were and why he considered them to be unlawful. And uh, he concluded as follows. Every individual is equal before and under the law. Excuse me. 
who has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination. And finally, the most important in my mind is Section 52, where it clearly states that the Constitution... I can't look at you, Piper. ...is the supreme law of Canada. So I'd like to read my oath of office that I took 15 years ago. <clears throat> I, Daniel Bulford, solemnly swear that I will faithfully, diligently, and impartially execute and perform the duties required of me as a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and will well and truly obey and perform all lawful orders and instructions that I receive as such, without fear, favor, or affection, of or toward any person, so help me God. I cannot be compliant or complicit with federal policies and provincial regulations that I sincerely believe to be unlawful by every measure. It is certainly not the case that the official narrative has demonstrably justified a gigantic overreach into the fundamental freedoms of every citizen of this country. And there we see the importance of a constitution and of people who read and understand and internalise that constitution and make it something on which they are prepared to act and stand and resist the unlawful uh, statutes and resist the power grab and resist um, the oppression of their people. This is uh, why I hope everyone's watching the, uh, uh, the uh, distance guide to the constitution where we discuss such items. This next slide here, this is the other um, version of the Canadian police. This is Ottawa Police tweeting out, uh, we want to thank at GoFundMe for listening to our concerns as a city and a police service. The decision to withhold funding from these unlawful demonstrations is an important step and we call on all crowdfunding sites to follow. So clearly there was uh, an, a, an effort made by Ottawa Police uh, to influence GoFundMe, and GoFundMe rolled over and had the tummy tickled on that one, uh, in order to uh, remove the financial support that Canada and the rest of the world have been offering the trucking, trucker protests, uh, because we'll be tied anyone who would voluntarily support a cause they thought to be right. That's not, that's not the sort of thing we want in a Western democracy, is it now? Um, uh, back to a positive view of Mounties here, there's an organisation called Mounties for Freedom. Uh, your freedom is our fight. It seems to be a large organisation. Uh, I would encourage people to go to the website. There's many excellent articles and letters on there. This is one from back in October uh, to uh, the uh, Commissioner uh, of Police. And uh, it, it starts off, we respectfully submit this open letter to express their most sincere concerns and resolute stand against the forced coercive medical intervention of Canadians and against the undue discrimination experienced by those exercising their lawful right to bodily autonomy. We're not against vaccinations, but as law enforcement officers, we cannot good conscience willingly participate in enforcing mandates that we believe go against the best interests of the people we protect. So it just shows you the quality of some of the people in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, it continues here that they have to uphold the police and uphold the law, defend the public interest, uh, we strongly believe that forced and coerced medical treatments undermine all three and contradict our duties and responsibilities. And they continue as experienced investigators um, uh, that they uh, have looked at the medical evidence 
and do not consider it to be convincing or compelling. Uh, a complete investigation must include full disclosure of all the facts of the case, even contradictory evidence. Why then is there little to no tolerance for free and open debate on this matter, they ask? Many credible medical and scientific experts are being censored. Accordingly, we rightly have concerns about the science that we are being coerced to follow. So an excellent letter there, and there's more similar material on their website. Uh, David, um, uh, David, sorry, just before we move on, there was another little uh, sentence in that, in that uh, open letter that I just wanted to, to highlight there, that we remain loyal to the Charter and Bill of Rights. Now, I'm still getting emails, a lot of emails from people, uh, highlighting the fact that, of course, uh, the UK government is attempting to push through a new Bill of Rights at the moment, which removes potentially uh, this right to bodily autonomy. Um, and I just thought it was very interesting that in Canada, at least, there are some people still recognising that they have a Bill of Rights and that they want to live by it. Yes, and, and it's, it's been very interesting that in these times of oppression uh, that people have been rediscovering these ideas um, that had perhaps been ignored in, in, in more um, calm and placid times. Uh, they're rediscovering ideas on which they feel uh, that their safety, uh, their freedom and their self-respect uh, depend. Yes. Okay, and that takes us then to CBC and two British Columbia doctors went on a COVID-19 speaking tour. Colleagues say their misinformation put public at risk. Yeah, so this, this seemed to be a hit piece by the CDC, uh, Georgia uh, Smythe and Lindsay uh, Duncrome, but um, it was actually interesting as the as the article developed, um, there was a little more sympathy uh, than I would have expected uh, for the, uh, for the, the, the non-conforming views of these two doctors. Um, <clears throat> the, the CDC reports that Dr. Uh, Mothouse and Charles Hoff are the subject of complaints from fellow physicians about spreading COVID-19 misinformation. The pair are both practicing family physicians in BC and have active licenses. And in part, this was an, uh, an invitation for, for people to join the witch hunt against these two doctors. But then they did give the doctors the last word, um, and they reported it accurately. I will never deceive people, said Hoff. I do what I do because I love my patients. And that's how the article finished. So even the CDC, the CBC, sorry, are, um, I think, starting to wake up to the fact that the, the, the mainstream government narrative is not any longer um, uh, credible and that the people who are calling it out do need to be listened and do need to be given some degree of, uh, of a fair hearing. So let's hope we see more of that. Um, other people who are standing out uh, in Canada and standing up for Canadians include uh, this major uh, Chodowski uh, of uh, the armed forces in Canada. And um, uh, he is, uh, well, he introduces himself and, and gives you his background and you understand why he's uh, the one who's actually standing up on these matters of constitutional law uh, and the basic rights of Canadians. Good day, folks. My name is Major Stephen Shlodowski. I have served Canada in the Canadian Armed Forces for 20 plus years. I hold a first class honors degree in political science. 
and I have held several Army command positions. I have an urgent message for all Canadians. For nearly two years, our own elected government officials have been using the bullying tactics of fear, intimidation, coercion, and financial and physical violence against us to gain compliance for certain repeated medical procedures. We tell our children that bullying is wrong. We know it to be so. Yet we allow our leaders to do this to us. They have knowingly and repeatedly violated the highest laws of the land in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as other signed international human rights agreements. Canadians have been lulled into believing that the same government who suppresses your freedoms in the name of safety will one day just reward you back with your freedoms if you just comply to ever-changing rules and health orders. That, folks, is the very definition of tyranny, not democracy. Humans are inherently free. Kings and queens and government cronies can give you, can't give you your basic human rights. They are naturally yours. They can't be given. They can't be taken. They can only be suppressed. In the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Queen Elizabeth is recognizing in law our fundamental freedoms. The federal and provincial governments of Canada have chosen through a well-planned and orchestrated set of measures to trick and fool and scare you, the very people who elected them and pay their salaries, into complying with the suppression of our basic human rights. They have knowingly betrayed you and me under the lie of safety. He's recognizing that hum human beings are inherently free. And that call, that idea, is what ultimately will take down Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government. Um, he mentioned there the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This next tweet here from a retired Canadian journalist um, says, this is where we are at in Canada in February 2022. Our charter is a total fake document. Our governments do not honour its existence at all. And she's gone and she's crossed out the various parts of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that no longer have any effective um, uh, 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 authority uh, in Canada because the government have chosen uh, not to honour them. So those, that is where Canada sits and the fight goes on. Uh, a couple of comments just to finish off here. Um, we had this very, very nice um, tweet uh, from the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Andy asked Red, what are you in for? And Red's answer is, I honked in Ottawa. And even better, and I love this one from the Babylon Bee, uh, one of its uh, satirical fake headlines, City of Jericho moves to make it illegal to blow horns. And we might talk about why that's so wonderful in extra time. Okay. What's next? Oh, uh, I think I think next it's Katie Joe is uh, is is going to talk a little bit uh, about some issues to do with heart attack. Yes, welcome to the program, Katie Joe. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, so there was a, a comedian called Heather McDonald 
um, who four days ago um, collapsed on stage uh, whilst performing her stand-up routine. Um, and this was a genuine collapse. I know that you, David, um, thought it was part of the routine, uh, but it, she really does go down like a ton of bricks. Um, the irony of the whole story is that she was bragging in her act about how many vaccines she's had. Uh, double boosted, flu shots, uh, shingle shot, um, and then she mocks uh, women actually that have had problems with their menstrual cycle um, uh, after having the jab by screaming, and I still get my period, what? Um, yeah, she's just absolutely awful. Um, and then, uh, yeah, she brags about going to Mexico, uh, doing meets and greets, and she says she's never got COVID, Jesus clearly loves me, and then she goes down um, like a ton of bricks. Um, it's a pretty impressive fall. And the audience to start with, like you, David, think that it's part of the act. Um, and then we see, you know, people start to panic and rush on stage. I think you've got the clip, um, let's, let's watch it. I don't mean to brag, I don't care, but I want you to know, double vaxxed booster flu shot and i'm gonna be honest i have the shingle shot too and i still get my period what yes traveled went to mexico twice did shows meet and greets never got covid clearly jesus loves me the most seriously so nice so nice So yeah, so um, she she goes down um, pretty hard. Um, she's uh, fractured her skull um, and stayed in hospital over the weekend um, for multiple tests, but they can't find out why she collapsed. <laughs> um, yeah, they haven't got a clue. It's an absolute mystery. Um, but she has since uh, been interviewed and she said that she's definitely not getting the fourth booster. Um, so I wonder if actually she's, it's finally, I don't know, the bump on the head might have, um, you know, knocked some sense into her. Um, but uh, yeah, she's, um, she's not the only comedian. Um, there's another lefty comedian called Chelsea Handler who had to cancel her tour which was called vaccinated and horny um she's in hospital not with covid apparently uh but she and she hasn't disclosed why she's in hospital um but it's again it's definitely not the vaccine um yeah just just uh, absolutely yeah i mean karma at its best really um so we uh, we know that most of the common uh, commonest side effects from these vaccines are heart problems um we know that you know heart attacks myocarditis uh, from uh, thrombotic uh, vascular conditions, it, the list goes on and on. Um, and the mainstream media is just, it's, it's, it's hysterical, trying its best to come up 
with reasons for why and excuses why people are getting these um, heart attacks. Um, and you've got there some of my, some of my favourites: uh, shoveling snow um, is is a, can cause heart attacks. Skipping breast breakfast. Um, high energy bills, um, prices increases. Um, what else have we got? Um, you know, we've got there cold weather and something that I had to Google winter vagina. I mean, I've never even heard of such a thing. Um, so yeah, you've got all of these things now that are the cause of this increase in, um, in heart troubles and heart problems. Um, and there are a few that have actually been, they are genuine, and there are a few that have actually been made up, which are brilliant. Um, we've got breathing too many times a day could, could uh, raise your risk of a deadly heart attack. Um, and also the referee's whistle may have may be caused to sudden increase in heart problems among sports players, experts say. Um, and I had to have I had to add that little uh, meme in there when you think you're having a heart attack, but then you remember you're not vaccinated. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're just absolutely hilarious. Um, and, you know, I'm laughing, but, you know, the increase in heart attacks is frightening. Um, and I was told by a friend uh, recently to download the Flight Radar 24 app. Um, and put on alerts uh, to 7700 Squawk. Um, my iPad won't do it, it's been playing up. But uh, apparently he said um, the emergency alerts that you, you normally get uh, from planes that are in the air are normally four to three a month, and they're now getting between four and 10 a day. So it's, yeah, it's, it's huge. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's uh, move on to this from the metro then. Um, oh, sort of related uh, uh, topic. Uh, this is uh, well. I thought it was pretty <laughs> despicable, actually. NHS recruits sheep to calm twelve-year-olds getting COVID jabs is the headline, and they talk about. Uh, uh, let's see. What are they saying? Uh, a petting zoo full of sheep and a skate park are just some of the things that uh, the NHS has lined up to get children vaccinated. Um, so uh, several sheep, one called lashes, one called cumin, one called coriander, and so on, uh, were uh, heading over to Nescott College in Epsom to encourage uh, children or settle their nerves while they're getting this done. Uh, and, uh, well, they've got other things going on during half term, balloons, uh, clowns, other activities will be an offer uh, for children at various community centres around the place in order to persuade them uh, that it's uh, perfectly fine. Fine. Well, of course, this is applied psychology at children level, isn't it? This is, uh, you've got something happening which is very serious, uh, but get the children to comply, to soften it. Uh, you're bringing in animals, but what's at work, political um, applied psychology? Yes. David, now you've got a little bit of video from uh, Dr. McCulloch. Yes, yeah, so you were talking there about... Uh essentially tricking, persuading children to have vaccinations. Um, we'll go over to Mr. Dr. McCulloch for an assessment of the actual risk. I'm an epidemiologist and people have asked me, Dr. McCulloch, are the vaccines actually causing the deaths? The epidemiological construct that we have to go through is called the Bradford Hill tenets of causality. So the first question is, is it a large signal? Is it a large epidemiologic signal? And I tell you, it's astronomical. All the vaccines combined in the United States per year, it's no more than 150 deaths, not temporarily related. Here we're at over 21,000 deaths. So clearly it's a massive signal, number one. 
Number two, is there a dangerous mechanism of action? The answer is yes. Frankly, we know the vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. They install production of the spike protein. The spike protein is what makes the respiratory infection lethal. And it follows that in some people, excessive production of the spike protein in a vulnerable person would be lethal after a vaccine. The third criteria is, is it internally consistent? Are there other conditions that are now acknowledged that they themselves could be fatal? And the answer is sure. It, with uh, myocarditis, our FDA agrees, all the regulatory experts agree that the vaccines cause myocarditis. Can it be fatal? Yes. Have there been fatal cases, cases published? Yes. Uh, by Verma and Choi, as an example. Those are uh, publications. There are over 200 peer-reviewed publications of myocarditis. How about other forms of death? Vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, uh, uh, thrombosis, blood clots, uh, a variety of other uh, stroke, hypertension, myocardial infarction, a variety of other lethal syndromes. There's over a thousand peer-reviewed uh, papers published on fatal and non-fatal outcomes. So that criteria is met. So it's internally consistent. Is it externally consistent? Um, it, it, so it's consistent with the yellow card system, the UDRA system, and the um, uh, uh, and the US VAR system. And finally, is it temporarily related? Yes, it's very tightly temporarily related. So I've just gone through the exercise. It is beyond any shadow of a doubt that the vaccines are causing large numbers of deaths. It's unequivocal. Uh, it is unassailable. Mm -hmm. Those conclusions, and I'm a card-carrying epidemiologist, I'm telling you, the vaccines are causing large numbers of deaths. And that is the message that people, uh, particularly people with children who have been asked to have the vaccine, need to understand, need to hear, uh, need to have uh, not suppressed by the BBC, but actually broadcast so that we can have a proper debate about safety of the vaccines that are being forced onto the population. Um, uh, Brian, uh, you've uh, carried out some interviews with um, um, uh, some people in the uh, undertaking industry in the UK. Uh, this next article is from the, the excellent Steve Kutch um, um, newsletter, um, and it reports an embalmer in the United States who stated that 93% of the cases that they are seeing of deadly blood clots caused by the COVID uh, vaccination. Uh, Anna Foster, an Obama with 11 years experience, um, is uh, interviewed and she reveals that 93% of her last 30 cases died due to clots from the COVID vaccine. Um, Steve Kutch continues, it's a massive health issue since it's killing a huge number of people. Our Obama friends have noticed it as well and they've never seen it before in their careers. The clots are only associated with people who have been vaccinated or reserved only after the vaccines were rolled out. The clots are life-threatening and almost certainly a root cause of death in all of these cases. Doctors and coroners in the area are completely unaware of the problem. Um, and she goes on at some length in that article, and it's well worth uh, looking out. Uh, another, uh, this time anonymous, Midwestern doctor writes here um, that the smallpox pandemic response is eerily similar to COVID. And uh, see, which what we see here is a is a demonstration uh, in Victorian England against compulsory vaccination. Uh, compulsory vaccination is German-born, down with compulsion. Reads the, uh, the the sign. Stop the slaughter of the innocents. Protest against compulsory vaccination. We have been here before. Uh, this uh, article continues. 
Uh, late December 2019, I predicted almost everything that's happened so far with COVID-19. It put me at odds with most of my physician colleagues. I was able to do so because I was familiar with the history and saw so many signs of our past mistakes uh, that, uh, that they would repeat themselves. Uh, for example, the real Anthony Fauci details how the HIV epidemic was a blueprint for the management of COVID. More on that from Katie shortly. Uh, this article continues. Uh, the cycle is as follows. A, concern, a concerning disease exists. Immunization is cited as a potential solution to the problem. Preliminary immunization campaign is conducted and makes the problem worse. As the problem is now worse, the need for immunization to address uh, it increases and another campaign is conducted. This makes the problem worse. The in, this increases the need for more aggressive measures to increase immunization. This makes the problem worse and further perpetuates the cycle before long, leading to very questionable governmental policies designed to force unwilling parties to uh, vaccinate. Um, and it then goes into the Leicester model, um, uh, where um, this was being run out in England, um, and Councillor Butcher of Leicester addressed uh, the, the issue and uh, concluded that they would not be uh, continuing with the vaccination programme. He said infectious disease, the, the best approach was plenty of water, eat good food, live in light and airy houses. Um, and uh, he emphasised that, this, that uh, if this was not done, uh, it was unlikely that any act of parliament of vaccination could prevent disease. That year following the protest, the government was replaced, mandates were terminated, and by 1887, vaccine coverage rates had dropped to 10%. To replace the vaccination model, Leicester uh, activists proposed a system of immediately quarantining smallpox patients, disinfection of the homes and quarantine of the contacts, alongside improving public sanitation. Medical community vehemently rejected the model, the, the model and zealously predicted that Leicester's gigantic experiment would soon result in a terrible massacre especially with the unprotected children who were viewed by the government physicians as bags of gunpowder. This didn't happen. Uh, the predicted catastrophe failed to materialise, um, and Leicester had dramatically lower rates of smallpox than other fully vaccinated towns. Uh, part, an extract from a long article, well worth the read. Um, we finish here with a short extract from uh, the latest song by Five Times August, uh, a, a protest songwriter that we've featured several times before. This one's called Anti-Fascist Blues. They're all control. And uh, we'll have more of that in extra. Okay, uh, so Kitty Joe, uh, over to you then. And uh, well, the more aggressive HIV strain. Yeah, yeah, I know you guys covered this on Friday, but I think it's important that we, we you know, we really try and see exactly what they're up to. Um, so you said on Friday, the latest news um, is that there's a new variant of HIV circulating in Europe. This new strain is apparently more virulent, more transmissible and progresses to AIDS faster. Um, there is a clip of Prince Harry recently um, talking uh, to HIV positive rugby legend Gareth Thomas. 
um, in support of National HIV Testing Week. Um, and obviously, he has his late mother's uh, legacy to uphold. Um, let's have a let's have a look at that clip of Prince Harry and what he has to say. Every single one of us has a duty, or at least an opportunity, to to get tested ourselves to make it easier for everybody else to get tested. And then it just becomes a regular thing like anything else. But if we're not getting tested and we're like, oh, you know, HIV, that's not that. How could that possibly affect me? That's affecting you know people over there. And it's like, no. It could affect you. I think once you get to meet people and you see the suffering around the world, you can't turn, I certainly can't turn my back on that. Then add in the fact that my mum's work was unfinished. I feel obligated to try and continue that as much as possible. I could never you know, fill her shoes, especially in, in this particular space, but because of what she did and what she stood for and how vocal she was about this issue. But you know, it's, it is, it's, it's the converging of all these different pieces, what the work that she was doing, trying to continue that, trying to finish the job, right? But also once you've seen, once you've met so many people, heard people's stories, seen the suffering, especially, you know, in Lesotho and Botswana, where I've seen it most, um, there, is, there, is, there is a way out of it. And if there's a way out of it and we know there's a solution, I'm like a typical guy, I just want to help fix things. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, sorry, so Kenny, there Joe, he is. What's, what's fascinating about that or the question that comes to me, first of all, is why now? Because uh, obviously uh, Princess Diana died a long time ago. What was it, mid-90s or something? And, and uh, uh, so, you know, he's had plenty of opportunity to, to uh, get on this uh, earlier, shall we say? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What's, what's the reason behind the push? Um, I think it's all to do with this, uh, this um, uh, campaign that's coming out now that, that has been pushed by from Biden. Um, we're same campaign has been launched in the UK. They, that was launched in uh, in December. Um, I think it's all it's all to do with this push. Basically, it's going to be uh, you know the next the next thing. So he's he's saying he's basically saying everybody has a duty to get tested and everyone has a, an obligation to do this. Um, he's. Uh, he says, yeah, where have we heard this before? You know, you're not ill. It's nothing wrong with you, but you've got to go and get tested anyway. Um, and David shared a fabulous documentary with me that I hadn't seen before called Eight Inc. Um, and you can find that on DuckDuckGo. And I'd seen a really great one before um, a couple of years ago called um, Eight hey, uh, I think it was called House of Numbers, that's it, HIV testing. Um, you can find that. They've actually got a really good Facebook page as well. Um, and there's a, a great book out there as well, written by the wonderful Ty Bollinger, um, which I carry everywhere um, with me, actually. It's a bit like a Bible. Um, the title's incredible, Monumental Myths of Modern Medical Mafia and the Mainstream Media and the Multitude of Lying Lies that Manufactured Them. Um, there's a there's a great section in that on the um, uh, myth behind, behind HIV and AIDS. Um, and basically, there are thousands of the world's top scientists disputing HIV and AIDS and the theory. And we have, you know, Dr. Kerry Mullis was very, very outspoken about this. Um, and of course, scientists questioning this, they're not allowed to. They're branded as AIDS deniers and there's no conversation, no debate. Again, what what does that remind you of? Um, you know, and it's it's very similar. You know, we have scientists questioning whether they've actually even isolated COVID nineteen. Same thing. You know, we have we have scientists questioning whether they've actually even isolated the uh, HIV um, virus. But yeah, going back to the campaign that's now coming out, 
we have uh, Biden claiming um, it was the aim of his administration to end the HIV AIDS epidemic by 2030. And as you can see there, a similar campaign was launched at the same time in the UK. And they have this fast track strategy plan um, in place, uh, which I think I gave you a slide for, um, which has four key objectives, uh, prevent, test, treat and retrain. So we've got fair access to and uptake of HIV prevention programmes. HIV testing in line with national guidelines will be scaled up. So that's more bogus tests for something you haven't got, more treatments for something you haven't got, more money for Big Pharma. Um, and then you've got there, those testing positive must meet, uh, must receive rapid access to care and treatment and um, addressing stigma through raising awareness and education. Um, I think that's them. They're going to be pushing this through schools um, as if our children haven't been messed up enough. Um, and of course, the solution is another mRNA vaccine, isn't it? Which you guys mentioned on Friday. You know, the Moderna um, vaccine has um, administered the first dose of its mRNA-based um, HIV vaccine um, to volunteers in clinical trials. Um, we're basically talking more genocide here. Um, there's, uh, they, they've scrapped... 50 million, this was last year, they scrapped 50 million doses of the University of Queensland's vaccine um, in Australia due to false positive HIV results. Um, and there's also a clip, a clip circulating um, from a BBC programme titled Horizon, the vaccine. Um, and that, that explains the procedure that the University of Queensland used. Um, I don't know if you've got that clip. Uh, no, we don't have that clip, Katie Jo, but it was, it was yeah, quite clear. that clip. No, it was. Yeah, it was, no, that's it, fine. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, basically, um, it's circulating, and I think people um, are thinking it's from a vaccine that's actually been administered. It isn't. It's. Um, it's as I say, it's from the uh, from the University of Queensland, um, and they're, they're they're basically talking about how they were they the scientists sought to stabilize a highly purified version of the spike protein of coronavirus by adding two short sequences from an HIV protein. Uh, glycoprotein 41. Why this choice? He says the more stable presentation is, is more likely to lead to uh, protective immune responses. Um, but the university did uh, did um, did uh, pull that uh, vaccine anyway. Um, I just think this whole push is going to cause huge panic. Um, and I think people are are going to just comply again and go out and get tested for HIV when they don't even need to. Um, there's already a hashtag going around called Know Your Status, um, you know, and, and, and you've, you've just got to look at who's, who's behind it again. It's, uh, it's Billy Gates, isn't it? Um, you know, so I think we've got to, this, this, this is probably going to be the next big push, yes. is, is this HIV testing. Okay, thank you for that, Katie Joe. And for David, I just want to add that a gentleman in Cornwall, Robert Ryder, has produced a book called Medical Fascism. Uh, which is challenging essentially the, go the government's uh, public health policy, particularly in relation to vaccines. And he, he has essentially done it by using all of the government's and the formal healthcare agencies' statistics against them. So working as a lay person, he's been able to produce the evidence to show that it's their own statistics which prove that their policies and argument is wrong. 
And I mention him particularly because uh, in, in one of his works, I'm not sure whether it was the book Medical Fascism, but certainly in earlier papers that Robert Ryder has produced, he highlights the case that when the public uh, back in the 1800s there in, in uh, UK challenged the vaccine policy and made common sense decisions as to what should be done to improve people's health. Uh, those common sense policies worked extremely well and the government had to back down. So let's just move on to mind manipulation. And uh, I have, have to come on to The Guardian here with this emotional headline, bereaved families call for the prime minister to lose say over UK COVID inquiry topics. It says exclusive group believes police investigations into num number 10 rule breaking claims compromises Boris Johnson's position. This is a particularly uh, spun piece of work by The Guardian, as we'll see, because it is much, much uh, more important. It goes deeper that the prime minister might lose his say over the topics of the inquiry, because we need to look at how that inquiry is being set up itself. But first of all, here's the journalist that wrote it, a gentleman called Robert Booth. He was awarded Specialist Journalist of the Year for his painstaking and in-depth reporting that highlights the social wrongs and, quote, lost voices of Britain. I was particularly interested in this because, of course, The Guardian has not covered uh, really any voices of people speaking out about the COVID lockdown policy or vaccines. They've been lost voices. And certainly anybody involved in the truckers' protests are lost voices. But he's apparently had a, an award for speaking out for those sorts of people. Here's the meat of it. The COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group fears that the current arrangement where Johnson has a final say over inquiry topics could allow him to water down examination of how his own conduct and that of senior officials may have undermined public trust in infection control measures that the bereaved say cost lives. Apologies, there's an A hanging on the end of that. Uh, the group, which represents more than 6,000 families, is calling on the Prime Minister to commit to accepting terms of, re of reference presented by the chair to the inquiry, uh, Lady Hallett, after a public consultation. Under the Inquiries Act, it is for the minister in formal charge to set the terms of reference, in this case, the prime minister. So we've got a nice circular system being set up here. But then Robert Booth says this, more than 159,000 people in the UK have died within 28 days of, quote, a positive COVID test and more than 180,000 had COVID on their death certificate. So, of course, we can see uh, that what he doesn't want to talk about is what the actual death uh, figures are. He's ignoring the key statistic of how many people died of COVID-19 as a single cause of death. And he also completely ignores vaccine adverse reactions and deaths. Why, if he's standing up for lost voices, why does this journalist not want to get in these areas? Uh, or even a contributory cause of death, but which, of course, nobody can establish because there were no uh, postmortems done. Well, this journalist can't seem to uh, see the wood for the trees, Mike. Um, I just want to emphasise that, yes, he said that he's interested in lost voices, but it's clear he's not going to support any voices which challenge the government's narrative on COVID-19 and vaccine-related deaths. So I think that uh, Robert Booth needs to 
uh, be asked a lot of questions. But let's put this in context because apparently we've got an inquiry coming up now with Lady Hallett to chair uh, what's been dubbed the spring public inquiry into the COVID pandemic. And if you read the comment on it, this is earlier because it says a chair will be appointed by Christmas. Um, uh, Boris Johnson has told the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group that it will happen. Well, the lady gets chosen. He told them that while it was not his decision, I support it. It's very moving. He said he would be the minister in formal charge of the public inquiry and supported the idea of the inquiry holding sessions in different parts of the country. So he's there when the lady, Lady Hallett, is uh, appointed and he's going to be in charge of the inquiry. The very same man, of course, who is now facing supposedly a police investigation. So this is, uh, you know, this is a circular um, procedure where you put a safe pair of hands in. And we need to pay attention to Lady Hallett because uh, what has she been involved in? Well, she was the safe pair of hands for the London bombings. She was the safe pair of hands for her deaths in Iraq. And um, she was the safe pair of hands for Salisbury and the Novichok side. Ah, right. So she is a safe pair of hands. Uh, meanwhile, we're to believe that the Met Police are going to question uh, Boris Johnson and we're going to see anything of substance out of it. And I think the answer to that is no. And the key bit about this, of course, this is about the measures that followed COVID. There is nothing in this which is going to look at what the claims were of COVID itself. And there's nothing to suggest that they're going to be looking at vaccine adverse reactions and deaths. Uh, but then it gets a little bit deeper because amongst the uh, public who've clearly suffered bereavements in their family, so I've got a lot of sympathy for them, uh, but now something interesting is happening. Documents are appearing like this one, learn lessons, save lives. What does the COVID-19 public inquiry uh, need to include? And apparently it's this lot. What happened in preparation for the pandemic? Public health measures, support for NHS staff, care homes, border controls, PPE, impacts on uh, vulnerable households, uh, 111 services, support for frontline workers, BAME inequalities, disability, uh, regional inequalities, devolved nations. The gist of this is participatory democracy, Mike, which of course is not democracy. This is where uh, charities and third sector organisations are being brought in to reinforce the government position. So I have to say that when I read the statement in this document um, by COVID Families for Justice themselves, if these people were true, and I believe that many of them clearly are, and they have suffered as a result of the events around COVID-19, what is actually happening, I think, is a takeover by third sector organisations uh, that we can, ex we can expect to see will help skew this so-called COVID-19 pandemic to rubber stamp everything that the government said and did. And uh, I think the evidence for this is overwhelming. David, um, we're right on the stops for time, but if I just bring this one up on screen, you, you have picked up the north of the border. We've got agents coming in to support government policy, uh, those agents coming from the third sector. Yes, I mean, this, this was the, the strong message from the, the Norton Ian Pearson campaign. 
there was the greatest assault um, in the history of our country on uh, the family, on the um, autonomy of the family, of the authority of parents. And um, this was being executed by the state. And it had willing helpers in most of the third sector. All of the state-funded third sector organisations lined up and were happily creating the policy. They had their fingerprints all over it. They were being well rewarded. And um, it was only a few, a few gallant outliers in the charitable sector, generally ones who took no uh, coin from the government, who uh, were able to speak out and resist uh, this assault on our liberty. Um, the, the fact that the government could buy the third sector and then point at the third sector and say, look, all of these charities are behind this. It must be good because they're charities. Put the press to sleep, put, put many of the legislators to sleep, and generally reassured people when they should have been sounding the alarm. Yeah, th thank you for that, David. Well, just to add to this, back in 2015, uh, January 2015, UK column was warning about this pernicious team operating at the heart of UK government uh, to change our thoughts and behaviour. They were the behavioural insights team. And in this diagram, we showed components. So they were working hand in glove with the cabinet office. They still are. Uh, we'd also got a charity, Nestor, involved. We'll come on to them. And uh, we'd got this gentleman, David Halpern, um, who was the lead government advisor on how to brainwash the UK public without people realising their brains had been affected. He is now on a world tour. Uh, so he's giving lectures worldwide on how other countries can follow on with this type of manipulation. And it was the UK column alone that warned of the activities of a French neuro uh, psychologist expert from Sarkozy's office, a gentleman called Willier, Oliver Willier. And uh, he was having secretive meetings with the cabinet office facilitated by the Franco-British uh, Council. So what about Nesta? Well, let's bring them in on screen and see what sort of people were involved back in 2015. Julie Meller, Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. So see health is brought into the circle. Uh, we've got Simon Linnett here, Rothschild uh, London privatisation expert. He'd be handy with the uh, privatisation of the NHS, I would imagine. Uh, we've got Sir John Chisholm, Chair of the Medical Research Council. And over here, we've got Dr. Michelle Harrison, uh, CEO of uh, Government Public Sector Practice, and apparently regularly facilitating high-level policy and strategy meeting across government behaviour change with the Blavatnik School of Government. Uh, we'll come back to uh, that. And David Pitt-Watson, who'd apparently written a book, New capitalists. So just remember this bit down here that you, you've got people working right across government to change behaviour. And we've got the Blavatnik School of Government mentioned. Uh, well, people need to go to this Oxford school to see what it's up to. Uh, this was an image that uh, we put up in 2015 because, Mike, you'd been very interested that uh, this man had donated 75 million to the University of Oxford to establish, quote, a new school of government. And uh, why should we be interested in this gentleman? Uh, because he is the wealthiest man in UK. He's a billionaire. 
Uh, he also originates from Ukraine. I'm sure he's a lovely man, but I think the public will be entitled to say, well, does he introduce politics into his line on training the government? Is he pro-Ukraine, for example? That would be an interesting position uh, if we're now using behavioural psychology to change government policy. Could, could it possibly be that that policy is being changed to be particularly pro-Ukrainian uh, and anti-Russian? I don't know. And this is the problem. We need answers. But it was the UK column that gave the detail of how these brainwashing teams were intertwined with David Cameron's uh, government. Francis Maud was there in this uh, network and Gus O'Donnell and, of course, Jeff Morgan, who's been a major third sector player. But the average member of the public totally unaware that this was happening. And uh, if I just move on, which uh, should come on in a second, I think. Oh, sorry. OK, so some of this is highlighted to show the main people involved. We'll skip through this very quickly. And um, there's all of the government agencies who were tied in this. And of course, we've got the Department of Health Centre, but also Education and DEFRA. And uh, let's remember that this leads us through to the Mindspace document where the Cabinet Office was boasting that people will not know their behaviours changed. And I want to reinforce this with the fact that We've now got documents appearing in Australia, transcript of proceeding of behavioural insights. And uh, we can see the types of panellists in Australia listening to a keynote address by David Halpern, the chief executive of the UK Behavioural Insights team. So the Australians being reframed. And here is a U, um, an EU document which is saying uh, what well, it's really gloating on the success of the behavioural policy throughout Germany. So uh, that was one of the documents that we actually brought forward to uh, Rainer Fulmick in his, uh, in, uh, to his jury in, also, in order to show that it's not simply the COVID pandemic and the vaccination policy that we're having to face. It's the fact the government is reinforcing it with the use of applied psychology. Uh, look, David, we're right out of time, but but why don't you just mention uh, this article from The National here? Uh, psychologists reveal uh, new ways to convince Scots to vote for independence. Yes, we'll, we'll cover this in extra time in more detail, but this is, this is psychological techniques are going to be used to get the Scots to vote for independence. This was the front page of The National at the weekend. Um, and the same tools that were used uh, in vaccination and health campaigns are going to be used to uh, change the voting intentions of the Scots. Um, and the, the national comments, economic benefits or costs are really not the right thing to focus on, <laughs> you don't say. Uh, what people respond to is stories about other human beings, people like themselves. If you hear stories about you from a similar background uh, and the process have gone through changing one way or another, that can be often more influential than facts. So we don't want those pesky facts. In the Scottish independence uh, debate, we just want uh, behavioural insights changing how people think. Yes. Okay, David, thank you very much for that. Katie Doe, thank you as well. Well, look, let's, let's, or, just, or let's we... just end on one final slide. Oh, sorry. Here because I... I, I, thought this was, uh, I thought this one was quite good, David, uh, just to end with. Uh, we've got, uh, a, well, you explain it. Well, we've got a quote from Biden. Gun manufacturers are the only industry exempt from being sued, direct quote. Everyone else in the world uh, has a Yoda moment 
and looks into the, into the air and says, there is another. Yes. Let's leave it there. Excellent. Okay, we'll leave it there. So once again, thank you, David and Katie Joe, for joining us. Uh, a lot of information coming into the UK column. So we're going to say thank you very much to everybody who's sending us information. We cannot get an individual reply back to it all, but we do acknowledge it. And we're also taking note of areas that are of particular concern to our audience. But again, we'll say we can't always deal with all of those subjects but they are, they are very much noted. Thank you very much to our overseas viewers and a very, very big thank you to people who are joining up, subscribing to the UK column because we can only do what we do with your financial support. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.